I don't want to rush this passage because it's such a sweet passage. It's one of my favorite passages in the book of Acts. So if you could, please grab a Bible or a Bible app and uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. That's what we're going to be in today. Um, Over the past several weeks, we've moved back and forth, kind of this pendulum swing in this first uh, section of the book of Acts between external and internal threats to the spread of the gospel and the growth of the church. We've seen external persecution from the religious leaders. We've seen internal threats of dishonesty and unrepentant sin in the life of the lives of Ananias and Sapphira. We swung back to persecution from the religious leaders, imprisonment, beatings, intimidation, and now we're swinging back again to an internal threat, again, to the spread of the gospel and the growth of the church. And so today, uh, we're going to see this internal threat of Uh, diversity, which we normally think of as a good thing, but we're going to see the threat of diversity leading to division, neglect, and grumbling. If you don't believe me, differences in people can actually lead to divisions. I know that's hard to believe. Uh, And in our passage, also to neglect and grumbling or complaining. Um, I want to start out by just pointing out that when we started Wayside, we're, you know, five and a half years of public ministry into it now. But when we were first putting together uh, kind of the vision and mission and values of of Wayside, we really wanted this church to be both multi-ethnic and multicultural. And those are two different things. You can have a multi-ethnic church that is monocultural. If everybody reads the same books, listens to the same music, hangs out at the same, you know, spot at the mall or whatever, uh, that's monocultural. Do people still go to malls? They don't. I'm thinking in the 80s. I'm back in my childhood here. Uh, but you can be multi-ethnic, but not multi, uh, but be monocultural. It's just one culture. We always wanted both. We wanted to have our cake and eat it too, so to speak, with multi-ethnic and multicultural church. And the vision was and is to multiply throughout Greater Austin, which is an incredibly diverse uh, uh, terrain in terms of the people that God has placed here, but it was to spread out through Greater Austin and reach different neighborhoods by planting diverse wayside congregations. We call wayside communities or moon towers to use that famous Austin symbolism to spread the light of the gospel and of God's glory in these different neighborhoods, but to have these these various diverse congregations that, that include both mono-ethnic and multi-ethnic. Sometimes, you know, you, you plant a small church, a, a congregation, it's not going to have a whole lot of multiculturalism. It might be pretty much monocultural, and that is okay, right? So long as you're not resisting multiculturalism, right? So we want to start congregations that were both mono-ethnic and multi-ethnic and multicultural and monocultural. So we wanted a, a mix, but by, by spreading out in this way, what we call the Moon Tower Vision, what we would essentially create is a multicultural city church where together across the city, but meeting in smaller groups, smaller congregations, we can move into neighborhoods and actually be relevant and actually connect with the ethnicities and the cultures present in that neighborhood, while at the same time keeping uh, some level of unity at the citywide level that allows us to have kind of big church resources with a small church footprint that can adapt to these different ethnicities and cultures. So that's the Moon Tower vision. And, and that's how we wanted to 
Uh, and I, I would love it if all the congregations were multicultural. That's great. Uh, but that's a slow process. Learning how to trust one another across those cultural divides uh, is, a, is, a, is a slow process that is only accomplished through humility and Christ-likeness. And so you have to cultivate that. And that's what our hope is in the years moving forward. And that's not going to be easy. All people, even Christians, are attracted to similarity and familiarity. Again, I don't think I have to make the case for that. I think all of us realize that in our heart and, and uh, in our predisposition, but also sometimes it's just outright sin, is we want what's comfortable to us. We want what's familiar to us. We want something similar to us, someone or ones similar to us. And so we resist. In a diverse body of believers, this tendency can create fissures or fault lines uh, in, in uh, the congregation. And that's exactly what we see in today's passage in the first part of Acts chapter 6. So the, the big idea today is that diversity can lead to division. Diversity can lead to division, but that means that we as Christians must be constantly solving for unity even as we resist imposing uniformity. Because that's what our, our tendency is. We know it, we like it, it's familiar to us. We're going to impose uniformity so everyone else can, can be like us. And there are certain things that we need to be uh, uh, agreed upon across the board, theologically, doctrinally, etc., uh, some of our church practices. Um, but we should allow a lot of uh, leeway for differences as well. But we have to fight. We have to solve for unity in that context. So in our passage, we see how this whole process plays out in the first century church, in the early church there in Jerusalem. And it's, uh, and it's in just seven verses, really six, and then a summary. So here are the, kind of the three steps. Number one, diversity leads to division in verse one. We're going to look at that. Number two, division leads to addition. I'm going to explain that little enigmatic phrase. Division leads to addition in verses two through six. And then addition that comes out of that leads to multiplication of the church in verse 7. So let me go ahead and explain these uh, sort of enigmatic little statements here. Let me explain these steps. So first, diversity leads to division. And we're, again, we see this in verse 1. Let me reread it for us. It says, Now at this time, as the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint developed on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So, as the church grew, it grew more and more diverse. The more people that were added to it, the more different kinds of people were showing up in that congregation. And at this point in church history, nearly everyone in the church was Jewish. All the apostles, the, the twelve, were Jewish. Uh, uh, and, and at this point, at least... And we'll see this progression in the book of Acts where more and more Gentiles or non-Jews are brought into the church. But at this stage, pretty much everybody's Jewish, okay? But the majority of this congregation, the majority of the people were probably Hebraic Jews. In fact, that's almost certain. And Hebraic Jews, Hebrews uh, versus Hellenists, Hebrews were the ones who had remained in Palestine and still spoke a Semitic language. Primarily, they spoke Aramaic. Also, some of them spoke Hebrew especially uh, in the priestly class and the teachers of the law and such. But you've got these Hebraic Jews who were the majority, uh, and then the minority were these Hellenistic Jews who had, had gone out in the uh, diaspora, had, had been uh, uh, 
had moved out to these far-flung countries, these far-flung places in the Greek world, in the, in the world of Hellenism, which is the Greek language and Greek cultural influence. And they had adapted to this, and they had primarily begun speaking, speaking uh, uh, Greek and, and adapting to some of these Greek cultural influences, okay? And then after that, they had moved back to uh, Palestine, and they brought those Greek influences with them. And so these are the majority-minority groups in the church at this point. So you can imagine how in this context, outright discrimination, right? Uh, the, the folks coming from Alexandria and Egypt who were uh, 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 immersed in Greek culture and language, they might not have a strong of sentiment for the temple, for instance, or some of the things there in Jerusalem. So you can see how their different perspectives in different cultures could lead to both outright discrimination, but also just, just plain indifference. It could kind of creep in there that, well, that's those people over there, and these are my people over here. And we can see how that can develop. But either way, the daily distribution of food was being uh, focused on the Hebraic widows to the neglect of the Hellenistic widows. Don't you see if there's a majority of, of Hebrew Jews in the church, and then there's a minority of, of, of Hellenistic Jews in the church, and the, the Hebraic Jews are in charge of the distribution of food, well, they're going to go to their own moms and, and uh, these, these widows that are part of their culture, their cultural group within the church. So we can see how this could easily happen. Uh, but they, these Hellenistic widows were being uh, neglected. They weren't getting what they needed from the church in terms of meeting their needs. And so what happens? What happens when you see this kind of stuff going on in a church? Complaining, right? Like we start, we start murmuring. Well, did you see that, you know, nine out of the ten widows that were in line at the front of the line were Hebraic widows? Can you believe that? You know, something should be done about this. They're... they're they're cheating our widows, right? So there's murmuring, and that word is loaded, by the way. But murmuring or grumbling, this complaining, if you think about the body of Christ, this, this is a precancerous condition, spiritually speaking. It starts here. It starts with the grumbling. It starts with the little complaints. So something had to be done, and the apostles knew it. They did not shrug this off. This was an important thing that they had to tackle. This was an internal threat to the spread of the gospel, into the growth of the church. And, and their plan was simple. And this brings us to our next point. Division leads to addition. In other words, the church needed additional qualified leaders to help solve for unity in the, in the context of this problem, this issue. So they needed to add qualified leaders beyond just the apostles. And we see this need expressed and also resolved in the bulk of our passage, verses 2 through 6. It says in verse 2, So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. I.e., this, this is not proper, this is not right for us to step in, given our roles in the church, and, and, and figure out this logistical issue of getting food to the, the widows that need it. And so they say, instead, brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And that's a good 
summary of what they were doing. So here we see the current leaders, the apostles, the 12, they're prioritizing their God-given roles in the church, their jobs that God had given them to do. And that is the ministry of the word and prayer. They were preaching the gospel. We've already seen this in the book of Acts. They're in the temple courts preaching the good news of Jesus Christ, that he died for our sins and rose again to conquer sin and death and to, 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 to reconcile us to God, our creator, uh, to, so that we can be adopted into his family as his adopted sons and daughters in Christ. They're preaching this good news and they're teaching out of the Hebrew scriptures in the temple courts. And also uh, they were teaching and instructing throughout the city from house to house in the name of Jesus. That's what got them thrown in prison all these times is they were teaching in the name of Jesus. And at least some of their prayers, you think, well, what are they praying for? Well, at least some of their prayers were for those who were being evangelized in the city. It was for people that were hearing the gospel and they were praying that, that God's spirit would work in their hearts in such a way to convict them of their sin and their separation from God and convince them that they too needed to trust in Jesus Christ and become followers of Christ. And so they're praying for people who are evangelized. They're praying for people who are being edified in the church that these little baby believers can grow up to mature in their faith and become leaders in the church as we're going to look at in just a second. And it would have been wrong for the apostles to neglect their God-given task in order to just lump on more tasks and more responsibilities. You know, uh, it's what is the business world it says uh, 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. Or if you want to get something done, find someone who's too busy or whatever. I mean, that's, that's, that can't happen in the church. And that's why they resist it, okay? It would be wrong for them to neglect that God-given task in order to figure out this problem, this distribution of food to the widows. But they realized how important this was. They didn't just blow it off or, or paper over the issue and act like it wasn't an issue. They realized it was important, so they told the congregation to find seven wise, spirit-filled men with good reputations to run this ministry to widows. And we see this list of men in verses 5 and 6. It says, The announcement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Parmenas, and Nicolas, a proselyte from Antioch. And they brought these men before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. So notice something with me. All of these men have Greek names. What does that tell us? It tells us that it probably means that they were chosen from that Hellenistic minority within the church. Now, as far as I'm concerned, this is absolutely brilliant to do this. They said, you guys are bringing a problem to us. Your widows aren't being represented. So we're going to choose seven of your own number. These men, not who are going to, you know, all of a sudden neglect the Hebraic widows, but men who are wise, full of wisdom, full of the Holy Spirit. They have a good reputation amongst everyone in the church. And we're going to put them in charge of this. You see, they knew and understood the culture of these neglected widows. There's even a language barrier. The Hellenistic widows are speaking Koine Greek and the Hebraic widows are speaking Aramaic. So there's even linguistic issues at play here. But they understood the cultural issues of the neglected widows and they could solve for unity as they came up with a solution to this food distribution problem. And the mention of, of think about this, Stephen, Philip, the mention of the city of Antioch, 
they all point to upcoming chapters in the book of Acts. So Luke, as he's writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is, is preparing us for what's going to happen in chapters 7, 8, and beyond as the gospel moves forth through Stephen and Philip and on to Antioch and beyond, eventually to Rome. Uh, but these point to upcoming chapters. And then the mention of this proselyte, Nicholas, a proselyte is someone who is not ethnically Jewish, but who accepts the Jewish faith as a Gentile, uh, but accepts the Jewish faith. Okay, So just the mention that one of these seven men was actually a non-Jew. He was, he was uh, 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 a Gentile. And that, that's going to also point forward to a tendency to see a growing number of Gentiles as the gospel gets out of Jerusalem, out of Judea, out of Palestine, and on into the Greek world, the Greek and Roman world, all the way to Rome and beyond. And so we see all these kind of hints that Luke is dropping for us. And I like how the church leaders work with the congregation to choose and commission these seven men. You know, our church is, uh, we're technically Presbyterian in the sense that we have a presbytery or a group of elders. Presbyter just means elder in our tradition. But uh, we have a group of elders that, that make decisions in the church. Some of you might have grown up in a Southern Baptist church where there's uh, congregationalism, where the congregation ultimately makes the decisions. Uh, and they have a, a deacon board. And then there's usually the one elder is the pastor usually. Um, so there's different church governance models. And, and, and I like, I'm, I'm perfectly happy with the church governance model we have. I think it's great having a team of five men that we can, you know, that are biblically qualified, who we can work through things and make decisions. But it doesn't mean that we should be the ones that are always coming up with all the solutions and ideas, right? Like, we need to be humble enough to ask for help, right? So I love what the leaders do here. They set forth the requirements for these men. They say these, these men need to be full of wisdom, full of the Spirit, and have a good reputation. So you see the leaders, the apostles, making the determination on requirements, spiritually speaking, but then the congregation gets to actually look around based on those requirements and put forward seven qualified men, seven qualified candidates. And then the leaders, the, the apostles, that is, then they lay hands on the men and pray over them to publicly commission them as ministry leaders before the church congregation. So it's this really cool interplay of the congregation and the, the, the leaders of the church working together to, to solve for unity in this case. Okay. I love that. They humbly, these apostles humbly defer to the suggestions of others and grant authority to others to lead. They share the authority. And all of this leads us to our, our next and last point, that addition leads to multiplication. Now, what do I mean here? I, what I mean is that the additional ministry leaders that we see added in this passage, they, they help solve for unity so that the gospel won't be threatened by disunity. What's the greatest way to undercut the gospel? It's to live a life that seems like the gospel is meaningless. What's the greatest way to, to, to show people that Jesus, or at least convince people that Jesus isn't who he says he is, that the gospel isn't true? It's to act as if the gospel and Jesus don't matter and to be disunified and to be hateful and, and murmuring and complaining and, and broken in our relationships, Right? So these ministry leaders, by adding them, it's solving for unity to protect the legitimacy of the gospel in the eyes of the surrounding world. And the apostles then have time to concentrate on what God has given them to do, which is prayer and the ministry of the word. And both of these things happen as a result of additional leaders. And Luke gives us this great summary of what happens as a result of this in verse 7. He says, 
you know, now that the apostles can, can focus on the ministry of the word and prayer, and now that there's not disunity threatening the legitimacy of the gospel in the eyes of the surrounding culture in Jerusalem, what happens? The word of God kept spreading, the gospel kept going forward, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. So here we see three things resulting from all this. That, that Luke wants to clue us into. We see that the word of God or the good news of Jesus Christ keeps spreading. We see that the church keeps growing numerically, and I would also argue spiritually in terms of maturity. We see that in the passage. And then three, many of the priests were becoming disciples. So the mention of these many Jewish priests joining the church, it, it, it comes full circle and it reminds us of the increasing diversity which would inevitably creep towards disunity. Especially, think about this, when formerly pagan Gentiles, people that were absolutely repulsive in the eyes of of these, these Jewish priests, for instance, that are coming into the church, how do you deal with that tendency towards disunity when we see even more diversity coming into the church through the pages of Acts? Formerly pagan Gentiles begin filling the pews, and now we've got to figure out what to do about it. And that's part of the story of Acts, and it's beautiful. But we see the seeds of that unity among diversity happening in this passage today. All right, when I first became a Christian, and I began working in a church up in Fort Worth, which uh, Tony and Jay, my family over here, they still go there. And, uh, you know, Carl used to go there with me. Uh, but when I first became a Christian at 23 and I started working for that church, um, one of my first tasks, I worked in the ministry to men, but one of my first tasks was a ministry to women. Uh, it was to get with a couple guys and come up with uh, a plan, uh, what we called it manpower, the manpower ministry, but it was to create a ministry that could serve our widows and single moms because it was a large church and we had a large group of widows and single moms that needed a lot of practical help around their house, moving stuff, fixing stuff, etc. So we put together manpower and we set it up so that these teams of four men, there are four men per team, they would come out, uh, uh, and also sometimes women as well, uh, sometimes uh, uh, women who had different skills and abilities or wives of some of the men, they would come out too uh, with the teams, but they would come out monthly and they would knock out any needed tasks around the homes of these widows and single moms, but also, and don't lose this, don't lose sight of this, they would also just be there for encouragement, a word of kindness, a a, a word of encouragement, and they would always, always, the team would pray over the woman uh, that they were serving before they left that month, and I thought that was so, so beautiful, and I was actually pleasantly surprised that when I was up in uh, Fort Worth last week, and I was at Jay and Tony's ranch, uh, uh, Tony's mom is, is one of the women that are served now. Uh, uh, her, dad, her dad passed away, and now those manpower teams are still around however many years later. I think we set them up in like 2004, and, uh, and now they're serving someone from our own family, and, and she loves it. I was talking to her about it, and she is just thrilled, you know, and, and they do all sorts of stuff at her house, but really I think she just enjoys seeing those guys month after month and praying with them and, and being encouraged by them, and that's just really sweet. Um, it's still going strong, and they're still showing up. Uh, now, she, Amy, Tony's mom, is a committed member of this church up in Fort Worth. She is committed. She's been there many, many years. She knows all the leaders. She knows all the pastors. In fact, the, the, the lead pastors of the church would happily go out themselves 
and serve these physical needs at her house. But the, the, the cool thing is that um, she, she's actually even more blessed. I think it would be cool if the senior pastor of the church came out and served at her house. But I think she's even more blessed by the fact that she has a team of men who come by to serve her in these practical ways, who then free up the pastors to bless her in other ways through the ministry of preaching and teaching and equipping and these other things that they're called to do in that church that she attends. And the other cool thing about this manpower ministry is that it unites, it unifies the congregation by bringing together this diverse group of men of all ages. And when I say that these groups of four men are diverse, they are diverse in every way imaginable. Uh, you know, some, some, sometimes in language, but, but most certainly in age and marital status and experiences, background, abilities, social circles. Uh, you know, we got, we got Longhorns and Sooners and Aggies serving on teams together. It's like crazy, you know. Uh, but but I, I remember there was one guy, uh, older single guy, uh, and then there was a younger guy who was single who was like 21. There was a, a married guy. There was a guy who was recently divorced. There's all these guys, and they're serving together. And I don't think they would have ever met each other had it not been for these manpower teams and going out and serving together. And then secondly, it also unites that church up there because it brings together these men and these widows and single moms in an appropriate context to, be, to, to serve and be served. And, and what's cool is, I think in social settings, they would probably never cross paths because they would have this, you know, if you're between 22 and 24 and single guy, this is your 22 to 24 single guy ministry and you always do stuff with them. And then if you're a single mom between this age and this age, you go to this ministry over here and all of a sudden, you don't see these people that are from diverse backgrounds and diverse circumstances spending time together, except through this ministry, manpower. So all that to say, diversity can lead to division in a church, but we can solve for unity with all sorts of fresh ideas and fresh ministry structures. And guys, I say this a lot to, to our Wayside family, but we are all ears. Like, we do not have this thing figured out, okay? So if there's a way for us to solve for unity in the church, in our church, uh, man, we're all ears. Come talk to us, okay? Uh, and if that means creating new ministries and, and finding qualified leaders to lead those ministries, then so be it. We'll do that. Uh, as I was reading today's passage, I realized that, that we do, in fact, need more leaders here at Wayside. Uh, we, we do. <laughs> We need more ministry leaders. We, we can't buy into this business world thing about 20%, do 80% of the work. Uh, and, and, you know, if you want to get something done, find someone who's busy. Like, this stuff doesn't work in the body of Christ, okay? Um, my hope uh, is that we will raise up more leaders. And we're actually going to be talking about that in the coming months of how in 2022 can we better, more efficiently equip people to serve as leaders in various aspects of ministry. Uh, we, we need more qualified men trained to be elders. We are a complementarian church uh, in the sense that we believe that God, Scripture outlines that God has given the role of spiritual leadership, both in the family, in the marriage, in the family, and also in the church family to uh, men. Uh, and in the church context, to biblically qualified men, not just anybody, okay? Um, and that's not to disrespect women at all. I mean, we think men and women are absolutely equal in dignity and value and everything else. Um, but but that's our, that's in terms of elders, that's what we believe as a church. Now, 
There's a whole lot of other areas of leadership too, okay? So uh, one thing is deacons and deaconesses. We, we don't have deacons, at least officially at our church. Um, it's funny because, you know, uh, Paul writes to Timothy, he talks about deacons. He writes to Titus, he doesn't talk about deacons. I've had lots of good conversations with my brother about this. But it seems like there was a, a trajectory in the church where leadership structures were becoming more and more complex. And so they needed additional leaders like we see in today's passage. Well, right now, Wayside doesn't have uh, deacons or deaconesses, okay? And so we have to sort through that, all right? And I want to sort through that this year and figure out where we stand on these issues and what needs to be done about it. But beyond elders and deacons, there's also just roles of, of, of teaching in various capacities, of leading groups, of leading ministry teams, of doing all these things, and we need leaders to do that. But it all starts... And hear me that hear me here because this month our big theme this month is commitment. It all starts with committed members, committed to the church, not just the big C church, not just the body of Christ in a general sense, but 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 committed members of this local body of believers who are uh, who have a good reputation, who are full of wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit. That's where it starts. Uh, I love how Dr. Daryl Bach, who wrote a really great commentary in Acts, he says this in describing what it means to be filled with the Spirit in the context of our passage. He says, to be filled with the Spirit means that their lives are directed by God's Spirit so that they are spiritually sensitive, able to make good judgments, a sign of spiritual maturity. And then he goes on to say, the Spirit is so active that they are full of the Spirit's power and enablement. Like, that should be all of our goal, to be like that. Uh, and, I, and I would hope all of us would aspire to be such people. Um, that's one of the reasons we did the planning workshop, this, these praying and fasting over the last two weeks, and then doing the workshop yesterday, was to, to figure out how we need to arrange our lives in such a way that we're aligning with God's purposes for our spiritual growth and development to become these kind of people. To, to, uh, to become more sensitive to the Holy Spirit, to become more marked by the Spirit's power and enablement. So if there's an area of your life that is proving foolish, I mean, we all have to do this. We all have to take an assessment of ourselves. Is there an area of life that, that is proving foolish, that is folly, scripturally speaking? Then let's deal with it this year. And if you need to grow in your sensitivity to the Spirit by learning how to practice spiritual disciplines consistently, I need to grow in that area. Then let's work together on that this year, okay? My prayer is not only that every adult in this room would be committed to Christ and committed to his church here, Wayside, but that in the next one or two or three years, that every one of us would be a solid candidate for ministry leadership, even of ministries that we haven't even thought of yet. That's my heart as a pastor here at Wayside. And I exclude nobody from that expectation and desire. Okay? So know that that's my heart for you. And, uh, and we'll get there together. On a day like today where we're celebrating baptism in just a little bit, I would be remiss if I failed to mention that in this process, the very first step of obedience to Christ is to simply be baptized in his name. And we see that over and over again throughout the book of Acts. So I'll close by simply saying that, folks, I need you. 
I need you. Each and every one of you, everyone on Zoom who's a member of our church or becoming a member of our church, we need you. Our church family needs you. We were thinking the other day about just silly things like putting up chairs and tearing down chairs and and who's going to pick up the coffee and, and things like this. And it's like, I keep thinking of people, I'm like, oh, they'd be great, but for whatever reason, they can't. Because maybe it's, it's a, they're not as committed, or maybe, maybe it's something a little further along, a little more in-depth that they're maybe not qualified for yet. But my heart is to get everyone engaged, everyone involved, everybody developed, everybody leading in some sense, okay? We need you. Our church family needs you. And if, if we're going to help every diverse man, woman, and child in Greater Austin find and know the way to God through faith in Jesus Christ, which is our mission statement, then we're going to need each and every one of you in leaning into that mission. Next week, we're going to look at the short life of Stephen, the first martyr of the church. And we're going to see just how God can use a faithful servant who shows up in our passage today to serve widows' tables, how God can use an obedient heart like that uh, in faithfulness, even if only briefly, but in ways that absolutely go beyond our wildest imaginations in terms of the ripple effects. So we're going to look at that next week. Uh, So let me go ahead and pray for us. Please bow your heads.